All right, let's go Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. And the reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word to teach us about himself. We want you to know God. And so if you don't have one, take that one. And we'll call that a win. All right? And so uh, Matthew chapter 28. And um, what... While you're turning there, uh, this is the end of Matthew's gospel account. Uh, he's already told us about Jesus' life and his work. Uh, Jesus' to-do list is a massive to-do list. But by this point in the story, Jesus has already lived a sinless life that you and I are incapable of living. He has already died a sacrificial death on the cross as a propitiation or payment for our sins. He has been vindicated in his righteousness by being raised from the dead. And at this point in the story, he's also appeared on and off to uh, his followers and in a resurrected state for a period of about 40 days, right? over a month. And in Matthew 28, in verse 16 and following, we read words that, well, if you're a good church kid, you've read a few times before. Let's look at it together. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so Jesus is getting ready to ascend back into heaven, and he gathers his disciples together, all of his followers together, not just the disciples, he gathers them all together on this special mountainside that would have been special for them, and he gives them what I would typically refer to as his one last thing to say before I go kind of speech. We've all kind of walked through speeches like that. We've been the giver of those kinds of speeches. We've been the recipients of those kinds of speeches. Everybody who walks in late today is going to feel awkward, by the way. Yeah. He's been the recipient of those kind of speeches. I've been the recipient of those kind of speeches. And so Jesus gives his one last thing to say before I go message to his folks. And so, listen, this is a group of people, all right, that would have been very familiar with who Jesus is. Yeah, they, they're still struggling with some doubts. They're still trying to wrap their heads around everything that's gone on in the last month. But Jesus is talking, not talking to a group of people who have no idea who he is. He's talking to a group of people who, who have, through thick and thin, stuck with him. Who have watched him do the miracles. Who watched him die on the cross. Who now are trying to figure out what exactly it means that he's not dead anymore. And they're currently standing on a hillside listening for Jesus' last instructions to them. And so Jesus tells them the things that he wants his people to know and do while he's gone. The tone carried in this little speech is that Jesus is talking to his people. Not just any people. His people. And so what does he tell them? He tells them to go make disciples from everywhere else. To make other followers of Jesus from everywhere else. He tells them to do everything he's commanded them to do and to teach others to do everything he's commanded them to do baptize them, and on and on and on. These are Jesus' commands for his specific people. And so we've, 
As a church, as a collection of God's people, we've looked at this text several times, at least in my memory, and we've said this in the past, that this is the standard by which we or any other church, any other collection of God's people, ought to measure ourselves, to judge ourselves and our efforts as either success or failure. Most people call this the Great Commission, right? We like to describe it here as our one job to do. Our one job to do. But, I mean, other stuff can and should get done, but if we fail in this, then the question demands to be asked, right? What are we even doing here? But here's the problem, the complicated part, because the Great Commission, it's kind of a nebulous thing to measure. You ever thought through that? It's not easily understood as far as what is and is not successful. Like, like, at what point do we get to fairly call someone a disciple? Is it when they become a Christian? Is it when they start reading their Bible on a regular basis? Is it when they join a church? Is it when they start serving in some capacity? How much does lordship play into this? Right? That's not exactly an, an obvious thing to, to measure. Uh, or, or even more complicated. When do we get to say that we have taught others everything that we have been taught? Are we even sure that we have been taught everything that the disciples that came before us have been taught? See how this is complicated? And so to help us put some framework around this, to help us get an idea of, of what's actually going on here, we created a mission statement for ourselves. And those of you who have been here for a while, you know exactly what that mission statement is, right? You've heard it a thousand times. To know God, to what? Love one another, and to serve in the world, Right? And so for us, this isn't some higher authority for us. It's, it's, the, it's a grid work to help us measure ourselves against this great commission mandate that's been handed to us. It's the next step down the pipe to help us try to put some meat on the bones here. And over the past few months, we've sprinkled in some time to look at the first two pieces of this mission statement. All the way back in February, Tom Bullock over here helped us understand how we know God. And then back in May, John Courtney helped us walk through what it means to, how, to love one another and how that looks for us. And so this morning, I get to focus our time on how we serve in the world. Sound good to you? Yeah. It better. And to that, because we now need to look at this specific topic, we need to look at another place in the Bible. So flip to your left to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. So while you're turning there, let's unpack the context a little bit. Uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are probably, at least in most people's minds, uh, the most famous part of the Bible. All right? uh, Jesus uh, goes through what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. All right? and, and so he's gathered a bunch of followers to this hillside, and he sits down on this hillside, and he teaches over them. And most of the things that we think of when we think, oh, Jesus taught this and Jesus taught that is included in the Sermon on the Mount here. The Beatitudes are in there. The Lord's Prayer is in there. There's some other things that people consider are important in there. I think it all is, but we kind of have this hierarchy of stuff that we celebrate. And so one of the things that we tend to celebrate is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, salt in the ancient world carried a little more value than what we tend to think of it today, right? 
In fact, it, it carried an insanely high amount of value. Like, it, it would be ridiculous to us to think as, of salt as highly as they did. The, the Latin word for salt, solace, eventually morphed into our English word salary for a reason. It was this incredibly important, incredibly valuable commodity in the ancient world. Partially because like, that they didn't have refrigerators, right? That's, how, that's what you use to preserve your meat. And so meat's expensive. You don't want it to go to waste. And so preserving the meat in any way you can is a good thing. So that's, that's an important reason for salt. We can be honest this morning. The best thing about salt is that it tastes good. Right? It tastes good. Whatever you put salt on makes it better. And you don't even have to ask me. You can ask any of the gray-haired people in here whose doctors that put them on a salt-free diet. <laughs> ask them how much they hate their life. <laughs> I was at the Nashville Silver Knights game Friday night uh, in, in a long line to get a pretzel. And the gentleman behind me ordered a pretzel, but he ordered a salt-free one. And I felt a little sorry for him. <laughs> Said a quick little prayer for the guy. Salt makes things taste better, right? It makes all kinds of stuff taste better. Man, I'm from southeast Texas. Watermelon. Salt was created for watermelon. You can disagree with me, but you're wrong. <laughs> but listen, salt makes things better. But there's also different categories of salt, right? Like, there's, there's the good stuff that you put on, like, your food and you use to preserve and, and to season. But there's also the cheap stuff you throw in your driveway to de-ice it, right? And you wouldn't dare swap those two things out. You're going to eat salt-free before you start chopping up the driveway salt, right? And it would be absolutely ridiculous for you to get out your pink Himalayan sea salt grinder and start working on your sidewalk after the first snowstorm. There's, there's these two realities of salt, and the good stuff is intended to make things better. The purpose of good salt is to season. But Jesus here in Matthew 5 verse 13 says, well, if that salt's not salty anymore, what, what use is left for it? Might as well just throw it out on the ground and let people trample all over it, right? What exactly is left for you to do with it? Why would you even bother keeping it around? But that's not all he said. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So what does light do? Well, it illuminates, right? It reveals. It doesn't create reality. It shows you what's been there the whole time, right? It brings comfort. Have you ever been in a dark place much longer than you were than you wanted to be. For somebody to finally flip the light on in that moment it brings relief, doesn't it? There's vulnerability and there's insecurity in the dark, but when you can finally see what's out there, there's comfort. And then Jesus has this line about a city, a lit city set on a hill. You put a city on a big hilltop and light that sucker up, you're seeing it from a long way away, right? In fact, you can see it from as far away as your eyes can see anything. The only thing that's going to prevent you from seeing it is if something physically is standing in the way. It's impossible to miss. But again, Jesus isn't done talking. Look at verse 15. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It gives light to all in the house. Okay, so if the purpose of light is to illuminate and to help us see, the picture Jesus paints here is, well, wouldn't it be pretty ridiculous to immediately and intentionally hide that light? It'd be pretty ridiculous to light a lamp and, and then to intentionally stick it under something that would block that light, and in Jesus' case here, a basket. If the purpose of a light is to illuminate the dark place, then hiding that light so it can't illuminate is actually considered a waste, right? Like you leave a candle under a basket long enough, you're going to burn the house down. But let's say for a second that you didn't. You're still wasting an expensive candle. It is a first world reality to the nth degree to burn a candle simply because it smells nice. You ever thought through that? Like we have, I have, I'm a, I'm a grown man and I have two scented candles in my office. It's kind of ridiculous. One of them smells like coffee, it's awesome. <laughs> the other one smells like pine trees, but anyways. <laughs> that is a first world reality if I've ever heard one. I don't like the smell in here, so I'm going to burn a candle. But in, in the world that Jesus is living in and using this analogy in, they don't burn candles for sport, for, for the feel-goods. It served a purpose, right? And to burn it without using it to actually light something up was about akin to just burning your money right there. It was a waste. But notice here what Jesus does and does not say. He does not say, you are like salt and light. He says, you are salt and light. Jesus here is linking our purpose as his people in his world, in this world. He's linking our purpose as his people with the purposes of salt and light. So listen, I, I know that there's non-believers in the room right now, and I'm glad you're here. We're talking about a reality that just ain't you yet. He's talking to his people. And so I promise you, we'll, we'll address you here in a second. But, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are his people, Jesus here teaches that we are set apart for the purpose of making whatever place God put us better. He teaches that we are set apart for the purpose of bringing light into every dark corner of the house. So much so that to fail to do those things is actually seen by God as a waste. That living as unsalty salt or hidden light, we can completely miss the reason why God has us here. We can miss it. So what in the world do we do with that? How do we act as the kind of salt and light that Jesus is talking about here? Well, some churches try to do this with church-wide programs. Uh, don't mishear me because I, I think most of those programs are really good things, right? Uh, we have programs. Uh, we are a week removed now, or a week out now from vacation Bible school. We got 50-some-odd kids, hopefully a lot more than that, uh, who are going to be coming into this building. We've thrown all kinds of time and resources. We're throwing all kinds of volunteer energy at a program specifically designed to try to make disciples out of little hearts and minds. Programs can be a good thing. 
We want to be salt and lights to little kids this week or next week. So we can point to some good programs we can, that we're currently using. We can point to some programs that we used in the past, and we can probably dream up some programs that we will likely use in the future. Programs can be a really good thing. We even showed a video at the start of our time this morning that talked about churches cooperating together by the thousands so we can do some really amazing programs, right? Programs are good. But hear me. Because it is completely possible, entirely possible, to fill up our church calendar and our church budget with really good things, noble things, and still fail to be the salt and light that God has called us to be. It's entirely possible to busy ourselves on good things and fail to be the salt and light that God has called us to be. Because the reality is that unsalty salt hanging out by the salt pile doesn't make you salty again. And even if it did, I don't think it does, but even if it did, I still don't think that we'd either be as faithful as we, are, as we ought to be or as effective as we could be. It doesn't matter how well our cooperative efforts with, go with things like the North American Mission Board. We can and do and will for a long time support things like that. But it doesn't matter how successful they are. It doesn't for one second remove our church's specific responsibility to be salt and light in the city of Nashua, does it? We would never point to that, that massive organization, that massive programmatic effort and say, oh, the job's being done, we don't have a responsibility anymore. No, we have our own responsibility even as we cooperate together in the program, right? In the same exact way, it doesn't matter how much effort and energy and time, it doesn't matter how much success we see in the programs of our church collectively, every follower of Jesus has their own specific call to be salt and light and whatever places God has put you. All of us. Me, you, every one of us. And so instead of throwing all of our time and our energy and our effort eggs into the program basket, we think that this is better done by equipping each of us to live every day as salt and light everywhere outside of here. Not an either or, but definitely a both and. Let me to cautiously carry Jesus' analogy to the next level. All right? And I say cautiously because that's a dangerous thing when you do that. But I think I'm in a safe place, so if otherwise, let me know later. In the same way that continuing to dump a pile of salt on a single piece of meat, single area of a piece of meat, will make that place really, really, really salty, if our job is to season the whole piece, wouldn't it be better to spread the salt out? Yeah, that's how you season the whole piece, Right? In the same way that bringing a bunch of light bulbs together can and often does make a really pretty chandelier. We can create stuff here that everybody goes, ooh, ah, look at that. But if our job is to light up every room in the house, wouldn't that job be better done by taking a, one or two of those light bulbs and putting them in lamps in the other rooms? So instead of everything being a church program, Instead of every good and noble thing being something that needs to be planned by our leadership, financed by our budget, scheduled for our building, we instead want to look for ways to help you be the salt and light that God has called you to be. We think that's a better use of our time sometimes. And this is the, beautiful, this is the beauty of this approach because this can literally flesh itself out in as many different ways as we have people who are willing to walk in it. Because there ain't nobody in here who's exactly like the person sitting beside them. Not even close. 
If you talk to Bob Surtees long enough, he'll tell you that people don't do what you tell them to do. They do what they want to do, what they're interested in. Or I can do it like Bob Surtees. You ready? People don't do what you, <laughs> what you tell them to do. No? No? Okay. All right. No. No, Bob likes to say people... Okay, I can't do accents. Shut up. <laughs> people, Bob likes to say people don't do what you tell them to do. They do what they're interested in. And the man is right. The man's right. But here's where we see the absolute genius of our King Jesus. Because his call on us does not have to be seen, go because I told you to go. That's not in here. Now, don't mishear me. He carries that level of authority. And if he wanted to, that would be enough. But that's not what he's saying here. God has wired you impassioned you, gifted you, and placed you so that you can do what he's called you to do. And so the things that are of interest to you, the things that you're just kind of naturally good at, man, God has put those things in you on purpose. His call is to go be salt and light in whatever it is that you are interested in. You go do you. Repent of sin and then go do you. God has given you and created you in all these different ways for a far grander and a much more eternal purpose than our own entertainment. And when we act as salt and light in the circles of influence that he has seen fit to give us already, we take an otherworldly flavor of God's kingdom into places in this world that desperately need some seasoning. When we act as salt and light in the circles of influence that he's already seen fit to give you. We take a light that reveals how things actually are, a light that brings truth and brings comfort to parts of the world that have never seen the light before. But hear me, church. Don't you dare just settle for whatever circles he's already placed you in. Expand them. Expand them. Go find yourself some new circles. Not outside of your comfort zone, but in your comfort zone. Stretch it just a little bit. Because we're not building chandeliers anywhere outside of this place either. Join clubs. Participate in civic groups, from recreational groups. For goodness sakes, man, go meet your neighbors. Be salt and light. But lest you think that this is simply some political, temporary kingdom kind of stuff, I'll remind you that Jesus is not done talking yet. We've got one more verse to look at this morning. Because not one second of this is meant to build a, build a kingdom for ourselves. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Anybody notice a little conditional conjunction in there? The phrase, so that... We've talked about it ad nauseum here, right? So that. It's an important little hinge in, in the text, right? It, it, let, the, let the guy who failed sixth grade English teach you a grammar lesson real quick. Right? The phrase so that is a hinge in the middle of that sentence. And so whatever comes before the phrase so that is a means, no matter how great it is, it's a means to the far greater, far more satisfying, far better end that comes after the phrase so that, right? Right? And so Jesus just said that I have called you to be salt and light. There's a higher purpose for which Jesus has declared us to be salt and light. 
And what's that purpose? So that they may see your good works and give glory to who? So I said earlier that our mission statement is subservient to the Great Commission, our greater responsibility of making disciples of all nations. So hear me, we chase after knowing God. We chase after loving one another. And we learned today that we chase after serving as salt and light in our world for a far greater purpose of making disciples of all nations. That's why we do this. It's not because it sounds nice in a mission statement. Mission statements can come and go. This is to help us get and help us measure where we want to be. Which means, our efforts at being salt and light are only valuable, whether in this room or outside of this room, they are only valuable, valuable, beneficial, so far as they clearly point back to the beauty and the glory of our Jesus. So far as they only make his gospel Known. Being salt and light is only beneficial as far as it calls for a response to his lordship. Being salt and light is not about being a charity or a social justice group or an affinity club. We are an outpost of an eternal kingdom. And as a natural part of our orders to invite as many as possible into this kingdom, we are called to live in such a way that bears testimony to who our king is and what he does. We are called to live in such a way that stands out as beautifully distinct from the world around us. This is the reality of God's people today. This is the reality of God's people when Jesus says these words in the first century. And listen, if you know your Bible well, you know that this is the reality of God's people anytime. Because we could have just as easily opened up some Old Testament today. We could have opened up to Exodus 19 where God is speaking to his, his covenant people freshly rescued from slavery in Egypt where he tells them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This has always been the reality of God's people. Jesus isn't making up something new here. This is God's plan from before the foundation of the world. It is his word for his people. So, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? You do that by repenting of sin and by leaning into who he's called you to be. Lean in. Can, can the people around you, the people who know you best, who are running in your circles, point to a distinction in your life and in your worldview that points back to the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus? Can they point to something that is curiously salty in an unseasoned world? Can they mark out how you live in such a way that prioritizes God's kingdom and subverts what the world chases after? Listen, we can take another step into this. Maybe, maybe you can answer yes to all those. I'm not here to beat people up with this today. I bet there, I'm willing to bet that there's a bunch of people in this room right now who can say, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do that. But for many of you, the only people who ever get to see it are salty themselves. Or light themselves. And so what steps can you take this week to take salt and light where salt and light hasn't been yet. Do something with this. Chandeliers are pretty, 
but they only light one room. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I told you earlier we called a timeout a long time ago. Uh, but here's the deal. The vast majority of what we just talked about is specifically for God's people. And if you're not one, it doesn't really apply to you. But that doesn't mean that you can't respond to God's word today. So how do you do that? Your response is to meet Jesus. Because you cannot be salt and light in the world if you are the world. Your response is to meet Jesus. Jesus is in the business of making all things new. All things, you included. And for those who place their hope in, the, in him and in his work on the cross to pay the debt of their sin, they now belong to him. They're declared a new creation in Christ. Maybe today is the day. Today is the day that you'll take that step. To repent of sin and to come to him as Savior and Lord. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. There'll be a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you. Man, they'd love to walk you through what that means. But this is a time, both in one song and for the rest of the service, to respond to God's word today. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the call to be salt and light. There are days I can point to that are successful. There are days I can point to that very much are not. And God, I need help. I fight hard to, to, to be a beautiful distinction in this world, and I get it wrong so often, but that is what your grace is for. And so there's forgiveness when I screw it up. But mature people don't screw up as often. And I want to work towards that. God, give me wisdom to, to see and to make sense of those in my circles who, who need a little bit of salt and a little bit of light. Help me speak gospel truth in a way that's backed up by my actions. Help my actions bear testimony to the words in my mouth. God, for those in here who don't know Jesus yet, it's, it's kind of an awkward week for them. Would you use even this to draw people to yourself? You're big enough to not need a good sermon. Would you save people today? Would you show them what salt and light is and, and how it's utterly different? Open our eyes to see, open our taste buds to sense the distinction of your kingdom. God, we love you. As we sing, help us respond well. In your name we pray. Amen.